0: The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. In 2003, the Committee for the Nobel Prize in Literature awarded that year's honor to South African writer John M. Kotze, who, quote, in innumerable guises portrays the surprising involvement of the outsider, end quote. His novels, the press release said, are characterized by their well-crafted composition, pregnant dialogue, and analytical brilliance. After citing his criticism of the cruel rationalism and cosmetic morality of Western civilization, the press release runs through a half a dozen or so of his novels, including the Conradian political thriller Waiting for the Barbarians, the playful metanovel Foe, The Dostoevskian Master of Petersburg. No two books ever followed the same recipe, they say. Extensive reading reveals a recurring pattern. The downward spiraling journeys he considers necessary for the salvation of his characters. His protagonists are overwhelmed by the urge to sink but paradoxically derive strength from being stripped of all external dignity. End quote. While it's a body of work that won Coetzee a Nobel and many other prizes, and the esteem of critics, fellow novelists, and readers around the world, it didn't necessarily translate to universal praise in his home country of South Africa. Look at that sentence again, the urge to sink, but paradoxically derives strength from being stripped of all external dignity. Paradoxes abound, heroes struggling with guilt. Protagonists in isolation, civilization queasy with morality. Quote, His intellectual honesty erodes all basis of consolation and distances itself from the tawdry drama of remorse and confession. For some, it's the perfect stance for a novelist, a scrupulous doubter, a detached skeptic, a ruthless analyzer, a courageous creator of complicated, anti-heroes. For others, the stance gets in the way of progress, offers criticism without construction, wrestles with history without truly reckoning with it. In his 1999 novel Disgrace, says the Nobel Prize Committee, Kotze involves us in the struggle of a discredited university teacher to defend his own and his daughter's honor in the new circumstances that have arisen in South Africa, after the collapse of white supremacy. The novel deals with a question that is central to his works. Is it possible to evade history? End quote. Racism and sexism are at the forefront of disgrace and in post-apartheid South Africa. It is, says Robert McCrum of The Guardian, unquestionably Coetze's masterpiece. It took the novel in English into new imaginative and moral territory. Along with racism and the burdens of history in post-apartheid South Africa, the novel reflects concerns about sexism and predatory behavior that were present in the 1990s and have become only more prominent since then. Nearly a quarter of a century later, Mike Palindrome joins us for a rereading of Disgrace. Today on the History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Hello, everyone. I'm back from vacation, feeling strong and feeling rested. Those trees in the Pacific Northwest and the hikes into the mountains and the sunsets on the wave-pounded beaches of the Olympic Peninsula and the island-hopping ferries have been restorative to the soul. Also a trip to the Elliott Bay Bookstore in Seattle. Not quite the same pull on my heartstrings as the old building might have had, but still a warm place with a lot to offer. But I'm glad to be back in the captain's chair here in the Jack Wilson Studios, too. Ready to spend some time with you today. We're starting today with some Emily Dickinson But before we get into that, let's run through Disgrace. I set out the conflict and the paradoxes in the intro and all the praise, but let me give you some plot in case you haven't read this book in a while. The novel follows the travails of David Lurie, a 50-something university lecturer in Cape Town, who's a tough guy to like, frankly, at least in my eyes. In the very first chapter, we see that he's solved the problem of sex rather well in his own estimation, but as we learn, his own estimation is often self-delusion. In this case, Lurie thinks he's solved the problem of sex by a weekly visit to a prostitute, but he's completely mistaken about the nature of the relationship that the two of them have to one another. He moves from that to the seduction of a student of his, but he's mistaken about that relationship too. When he's brought forward to face a sexual misconduct tribunal, he refuses to defend himself for reasons he views as noble. But again, we are aware, even if he isn't, that his defiant stance might feel satisfying, but is not making the statement that he believes that he's making. And the novel is just getting started. Disgraced by his conduct, though he would probably say disgraced by the committee rather than by the conduct itself, as if the problem were not with his actions, but with overreaction by his accusers, he heads to the country to stay with his daughter, Lucy, who's working the land. But this is post-apartheid South Africa, and history is not finished being written. Her farm is attacked by a gang of black men, Lucy is raped. Lurie is badly beaten. They recognize one of the assailants, but Lucy refuses to press charges. Lurie cannot fathom her refusal, but there's a lot he can't fathom in this new world. Just about any motivation by any of the people who surround him, for one thing. He's wrong about the feelings of others, how they regard him, how he fits, what he stands for. The novel is bleak, a descendant of Conrad and Kafka and Beckett. And it's utterly riveting. Okay. Can't wait to have Mike out here to take us through his reactions to the novel, but let's turn to our next Emily Dickinson poem. Last time we looked at her mega-hit, Safe in Their Alabaster Chambers, a.k.a. poem 124. Which brings us to number 129, which is a curious one, not as major, as the last one we looked at, but interesting, I think, and of particular relevance to me. I was just in the mountains of the Pacific Northwest, walking around Seattle on those summer days when the clouds and mist part, and you see that gorgeous view of Mount Rainier suddenly looming, transcendent and inspiring. It's a feeling I knew well from living there once upon a time. You turn a corner... And there it is, arresting you with its beauty. And it's not just Rainier. It's the view of Whidbey Island from Mukilteo or Mount Baker, when you come into view of that, or the view across the Sound from just about anywhere, or the view of the city as seen across the waters of Lake Union. On this trip, I went to the Olympic Peninsula, and one can see the views north from Port Angeles and the 360 view from Hurricane Ridge, and the views of the ocean from those beaches on the west coast, all of those are hit and miss in terms of the view that you get. The morning might be foggy and the afternoon crystal clear, or the whole day might be shrouded in clouds and fog, or these days, Canadian wildfire smoke. You look at The occlusion and hope for transparency. Peer through that mist. Let something open up. You think? Let me see all the way across. Let my soul take it in. The vista. That's the feeling. Ah, this, that sunset in this smoke looks pinched, narrowed, dulled. Let me see the beautiful sky beyond. There's something there I want and need. Well, Emily Dickinson has this same sensation, but she places it geographically in the Alps. So here we go. Poem 129. Our lives are Swiss, so still, so cool, till some odd afternoon the Alps neglect their curtains and we look farther on. Italy stands the other side. While like a guard between, the solemn Alps, the siren Alps, forever intervene. couple of textual notes there. Italy is in italics. There are two exclamation marks at the end of each. Five-line stanza. And we look farther on, exclamation mark, and forever intervene, exclamation mark. For the rest, the dashes and the uh, no punctuation at all do the work at the end of the lines. Okay. So what's happening here? First of all, this isn't just about Switzerland and Italy. I'm pretty sure Emily Dickinson never saw Italy, but it was an important place for her and others as a for what it represented. Okay, Switzerland too, actually. So what, what is this about if it's not a, a travel poem by someone who has just visited Switzerland and Italy and are commenting on the mountains there and the the views that you get? Well, it's a poem about us. Our very first line, our lives are Swiss. So still, so cool. That's the first two lines. Our lives are Swiss. So still, so cool. If you're saying, well, I don't think Swiss people are still and cool. That's a kind of a stereotype of them. Well, then you're kind of missing the point. She's talking about us, about how we are. We have still and cool lives. Why is that? Well, let's see what happens when the Alps neglect their curtains, which is to say when the clouds and mist drop, and we see clearly, we see further. What do we see from our vantage point in Switzerland? We see Italy in italics. This is that 19th century mode of the northern Europeans looking to Italy for a burst of sun, a burst of life, a burst of sex even. And here it's crossed the Atlantic. It's infused itself into Emily Dickinson's mind. Physical pleasures and the pleasure of letting oneself live a little, experience passion, give in to joy. And Emily says, we are the Swiss, blocked from those pleasures by the Alps. The Alps that have a double side to them. They're solemn, standing there like the Ten Commandments, as Helen Vendler suggests. But they're also sirens, as in Homer calling us, seducing us. Dickinson was anticipating Freud a bit. You might say we have desires, and they're blocked much of the time. We stand here, still and cool, our superego keeping our lives Swiss, but once in a while, those alpine curtains part, and we see Italy, and our id does a little Tarantella in response. We know it's there forever, no matter how thick the mountains or how dense the clouds. We catch glimpses. And maybe sometimes we go there, evading the guards. Though that's not in the poem. A visit, it's enough to travel there in spirit. In the ten lines, just 40 words of this poem, breaking out from this still and cool life, life, That we live the Swiss life and go to Italy. That's poem 129. Interesting to think how David Lurie of the book Disgrace might respond to this one. He'd argue for moving to Italy, probably. No sense living a still and cool life when you can be roaming through the streets imposing your id on an unsuspecting populace. Mike Palindrome and the novel Disgrace. After this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get Fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes... The Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus, in the Wondery app, or Wondery Kids Plus, in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is our old friend Mike Palindrome, the leader by a mile in most appearances here on the History of Literature. Mike, welcome back to the show. Hey Jack. So, do you know what your most popular episode is? the The most popular one in which you feature. Can you guess?
1: Um, I want to say David Foster Wallace. One of those. (laughs) One of the
0: ones you did without me. (laughs) (laughs) It's the the, uh, nope. It's It's raising raising readers. no it is if you saw the top 10 you would you that might clue you in a little more most of the ones in the top 10 are just a single author and like ernest hemingway marcel proust and those but the number one episode you are in the most downloaded which i think is number three on the all-time list of the number of downloads is haruki murakami
1: oh we did a single episode on him? I don't, yeah. I don't remember. Yeah, with the Norwegian <laughs> Wood? Or we did it on just a bunch of his works.
0: I think we did it on a bunch of his works, but yeah, I think so. We might bring him up a little bit later today as well because I've got another question for you that might bring him in. We are journeying to the world of South Africa just after apartheid ended. And I want to issue a blanket warning that this book involves some issues of sexual violence. So, listeners, please be aware of that and take appropriate steps as needed. But this was, oh, this is what I wanted to ask you about. So, this is really a book I associate with the 90s. It was published in 1999. It won the Man booker Prize. And then Coetze won the the Nobel four years later, 2003. But mm-hmm. it kind of made me interested in the books of the 90s. Uh, and I always like to go to that website, thegreatestbooks.org, which compiles lists of best-of books, And I think in this case, it had 130 lists that it could use for the best books of the 1990s. And Disgrace came in at number five. Wow. But can you guess number one?
1: Of the 90s? Yeah. um, Norwegian Wood? No, but close.
0: (laughs) Uh, I don't know. Wind Up Bird Chronicle. Ah, yeah. So Murakami again. So did you read this book in the 90s, or you you had mentioned that you had read it before. When did you first read Disgrace?
1: So I read it in 2003 because he won the Nobel Prize. Uh I I think I've mentioned this in prior episodes. I went through a phase where I was only reading novels by authors who were dead. (laughs) And I was feeling kind of guilty that I hadn't (laughs) read. Right. Not only had I not read Kotsia, but I had largely not read anybody who was not American or European. Mm. I I had this huge gap. And so I just and I had read a book by a Polish journalist, Majard Kapusinski, who had written an amazing book set in Africa, Another Day of Life. And I don't know if you know his story, but he's just an award-winning journalist who, after his death, it had come out that he had maybe fabricated a lot of his journalistic pieces. Mm. And he had, you know, a lot of people used to say his, his pieces read like fiction. Well, it turned out some of it was fiction. Right. Um, so anyway, I loved his work. And I, I was looking for another book that was just outside my comfort zone and so i, I picked up this grace
0: right well qunta is also a uh, he's no stranger to controversy himself and and in fact uh, i think after this book the a lot of mm-hmm. people think the reaction to this book where south africans considered it to be racist mm-hmm. may have led to his decision to emigrate to australia
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, it's um, so I thought that was interesting. So I read it in 2003, 20 years ago. And I I think one of the things that really I felt held up is the way he handles race and sex Mm. in this book. And uh, obviously, there are a lot of spoiler spoilers we'll get to in this in this episode. So just a warning to people who haven't read it. I think you can still enjoy it. But I mean, honestly, I, I thought it had the most plot twists of any novel I've read in recent memory.
2: Mm, mm-hmm. yeah. And I've
1: I'd, I'd forgotten a lot of the plot twists, but I did remember my just this gut feeling that I guess that's what often happens when you have 20 intervening years, that there was this feeling of being trapped by history mm, and yes. kind of. And I just love the way he handled that, that you could feel the weight of history, but he he was for the most part not very pedantic. And almost he, he makes and we can get into this more too, he he makes fun of his own pedantic character. The all the all the quoting of Blake and of course Byron, Byron <laughs> and Wordsworth and the all the allusions to Oedipus and I mean, there's this wonderful moment later in the novel when he says he does he gives one more quote and he goes, who cares? <laughs> I thought that, was, I thought that was just perfect. And so but right. I, I thought that I personally feel like it, the race and sex in this book is not at all dated.
0: Hmm. Right. I felt that way too, that it, there was a lot that was very fresh. And you know, I felt this way. I talked about it in a an episode I did that was looking at some movies of the 1980s, and one of them was about apartheid, mm-hmm. and which was a wonderful movie, A Dry White Season. And it's got Marlon Brando and Donald Sutherland, and it's really a fantastic film. And it kind of reminded me that a lot of the issues of apartheid are issues that are really with us today. And in particular, it's kind of the the position of white men and the position of white men during a period of change and in a period of transition and kind of the, the, the people, you know, David Lurie here is 52 and he's kind of lived life in a particular system. And it, it is very easy to think of it as being analogous to the Me Too movement and a guy like, you know, Weinstein or, or one of the other guys who they're, they're from a world where they took for granted kind of the role that they got to play in that world. And things have changed. And now he's dealing with that. And for them, it was the fall of apartheid. And for, us, it's just kind of a growing awareness and, and just the social change of men not being entitled to their position or their status just based on professional success or other forms of power.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think one of the, the best things about this book is that there's an overlap between what you're saying, that the historical change, the movement's aimed at white men in power and then with that just the fact that he he's a universal type of person who's flawed Mm -hmm. like he has flaws that go beyond being white or male or south african (laughs) right i just think he's as i was reading it i kept thinking he's been having a middle age crisis all his adult life (laughs) and that this book is what is his chance at stability and a foundation.
0: Yeah. He's like a, you know, to borrow the functioning alcoholic, he's like, instead of alcoholism, it's just oblivion. You know, he's a, he's completely oblivious, but he's a functioning of, yeah. a, a oblivious person, if that's right. Yeah. <laughs> if yeah. I had a better word for it. But it's like he he's succeeded and he's, he's got the respect of, of his colleagues and he's you know at first and he's his ex-wife when he meets with her she says you're better than all these people what are you doing and and you know but I when I read that passage I thought why is he better I mean he's been clueless for so long he's so self-deluded about his role and about his actions and and the positions that he's taking but you do see that he's a professor, and he's esteemed, and he's an author. And there's all these reasons why he probably believes he's smarter than others or or more self-aware, and that his opinions are valid, and he's kind of just applying a commonsensical view to the world. But instead, there's something amiss. And I think it's because of the the position he has in history, where it's given him this self-righteousness or this feeling that he's more intelligent than others but when you kind of break it down you don't feel like the author is is identifying with the character in that way in fact you feel like the author is exposing that he basically doesn't know anything about working on the land for example he knows about byron and his opera you know he's writing an opera and it's kind of exposed not in a cartoonish or you know, heavy handed way. But it's exposed that this is a guy who, you know, has all of this pride, but what he's proud of and what he does is actually kind of ridiculous compared with the real work that's going on around him.
1: The economics that are underpinning the book are fascinating. I mean, he he's constantly thinking like, well, you know, of his daughter running that stall in the market every weekend, like, you know, how does one make a living? How do you pay bills? Like, I mean, an academic job is one of the, it really is an ivory tower in in a setting like apartheid. Not only don't you have worries because you're tenured, but you don't have to go out into the world. I mean, when he sees that the head of his department at the supermarket, I almost forgot, like, Academics have to go food shopping. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> It's like, I mean, it's just, it's like this doubled layer of protection in South Africa to be an academic. I mean, I think of them as not, you know, fully part of society in the U S but I mean, and, and I admire that. I think like, Oh, how nice it'd be to be an academic, but yeah, it's just uh, it's doubled here. And yeah, that's, like, I wrote he's deeply competent, too, but yeah. he's deeply competent in academia. And, yeah, the opera, I mean, you know, it's obviously a spoiler, but how great is it that <laughs> the only one who appreciates the opera is is that dog <laughs> at the end, you know? And it, it's because the dog likes the banjo, the twang of yeah, the right. banjo. <laughs> I mean, I was, I was like, what's he what's just let's speak about the length of this book. how wonderful it is. it's 220 pages and I mm. just kept thinking, what's he gonna do in these last 15 pages? yeah that,
0: it uh, flies by too. Oh I mean man. his prose is so uh, fantastic it's so it's so capable and yeah. capacious it it can be thoughtful and philosophical, but it's not dull and it 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 really. To me it just strikes that perfect balance between being well written and being uh, descriptive and interesting and compelling and and the observations are very high but also you don't feel like you're getting dragged down by the author's love for his own sentences.
1: Yeah, I mean it's it's not it's not a funny book which I often associate with making it very um, making sadness and existentialism and tragedy very palatable I, I i like a little bit of humor but um yeah it's so fast-paced i mean it just lines like you know he says um when all else fails philosophize and the guy says like yeah you, know, you know i i carry a gun and he goes an armed philosopher i approve <laughs> yeah so and i remember this the first time i read it is that he, he writes like it's an oral tradition. there's something spellbinding mm. like when, when, when someone is telling a, a story a great, really great anecdote, and you're just you're just waiting to see what happens.
0: Yeah, right. It moves from it, he's not expecting the reader to indulge him a three-page side trip into a description of the sunset or something he's he's giving you and you said it had a lot of twists and turns it's only 220 pages but i also felt like there were almost mini novels Mm. yeah when i first started out the first chapter i thought it was going to be a story of her of uh of just this uh woman this prostitute that he's visiting once a week I thought that it was going to be the story of the two of them. And then, and then I thought it was going to be a story of him and being, you know, hauled before the committee with the, for having this relationship, this improper relationship with his student. And I thought that was going to be the book. And we really haven't even gotten started with the main narrative yet, <laughs> but they all kind of, circle back around but let's start with the first sentence because it is kind of encapsulates a lot of what we've been talking about so it starts out for a man of his age 52 divorced he has to his mind solved the problem of sex rather well end quote so did he solve this problem rather well
1: he's a sad awkward man i mean yeah well awkward in the sense that he can't keep a relationship but evidently he knows what works on certain women i mean he's a busy guy he's a secretary in his department he's um he's out like filling the night with you know visits to his favorite prostitute i mean but he has this line aging is not a graceful business well Mm. not not
0: his way not not the way he does it (laughs) yeah And solve the problem. I mean, I don't think he solves any problems rather well. You know, he has this, it's again, it's a sign of his oblivion that he thinks, oh, the the problem here is that I still want to have sex, even though I'm no longer married. People are maybe view me with a, a little bit of disgust, some of the women that I'd like to be sleeping with. And it's basically just the same yeah. sex worker who actually he feels they've got this bond and this connection and that they're actually they've made they're sort of in a relationship and she basically cuts that off and <laughs> and says no no you know leave me alone and in fact now i'm going to cut you off altogether because you're getting too creepy it's like how did that solve his problem of sex i mean that was basically blew up in his face
1: yeah I, and You know, the power of his writing and just what happens in a reader's mind when you when when you're so smitten with such great writing is you you sort of hope that Laurie becomes a better person Mm -hmm. and, you know, identify with him. But you're kind of in his mind for better or for worse. And I think for me, when he sleeps with Melanie, the student, the second time and there's this just horrible He says that the words undesired. Zia repeats it twice, and it. The first time I read it, I don't think I, I ever thought that it could be rape. But this time when I read it, yeah, it's it's rape. I mean, it's and
0: yeah, he says in there, he says not the word rape. No, no, it's not that. But when you read the description of what's happening, I think everybody today. Would, I don't yeah. know how people would have read it in 1999. Maybe they'd agree. But when you read it today, you think, no, this is. This is rape. This is. There's no question. She doesn't want to be there. She doesn't want to yeah. do that. And you're forcing yourself upon her. There's no other word for it. And so I just read it as. I don't know where the author is on this, but I, I felt like, well, this is another sign of this guy being clueless about what what his conduct is and what he's doing and I think that's a fair reading, no matter what the interpretation that the author had of rape. Because even if he's saying that it's not, it's basically a uh, a character forcing himself upon someone else against their will, and yeah. um, that's kind of how this guy goes through the world. Yeah, and I, I mean,
1: I, and I think that the way the book is structured, that moment, that incident with the, the, the rape of Melanie is far overshadowed by what happens to his daughter. But then, you know, when you feel like, okay, maybe Lurie has hope because there's this, I guess, chance for redemption. But then when he he reacts to Melanie's younger sister in this lewd way, and there's this line about, oh, to have both sisters in bed like a king. I was I was just so disgusted. I was thinking like he hasn't changed at all.
0: Yeah. He and that's yeah. where he goes and visits their family and oh, goes and visits I mean, their home. A,
1: like he What a what a scene. I mean, what Yeah. He was what was he hoping to accomplish?
0: Yeah. He seems to not really care that what he's doing to other people. It seems yeah. like he's maybe telling himself that this will be a kind of apology or this will be a kind of closing of the circle, but instead he's in there just thinking about his own desire and his own, you know, and it, it, I think here where it's kind of, I think we're being invited to think about white South Africans in a post-apartheid world. Mm-hmm. That it's a view of, well, you know, that that system is over and we have elections now and we've kind of shaken off the worst of the laws and everything that was keeping apartheid in place. But we still have a bunch of people who this is the world they've known, and this is the way they've been kind of trained to think. And he's just kind of a manifestation of that. And his thinking that what he does, that he has a right to do what he does just because of who he is. Yeah, has a parallel with the politics of the world that he's grown up with and that are now changing.
1: Yeah, I disliked him more this time around. I think maybe with my age, I've earned the right to be judgmental. Maybe it's become more acceptable to be judgmental of someone like him because, on the veneer, he is someone you can introduce very easily. He's a professor. He's well-spoken. He is witty. But yeah, it's, uh, th- that's kind of just not the way, when it comes down to it, people remember, really remember whether or not he was a good man. Yeah. But he has all the badges that society wants. And even that scene when he goes to Melanie's Parent's house, and he sees like little things like they don't drink. They and he comments on the decor, and he sort of you feel like he knows he can be one step ahead of them. But I mean, again, like who cares? Like why? Why does that matter? Why is he constantly comparing himself? And the the daughter is wonderful. The way she puts him in his place. She's kind of the only one who puts him in his place, other than his ex-wife too.
0: Yeah. Let's take a quick break and then come back and we'll go through his relationships with these women. We've talked about a couple and you've just raised a couple more. And I think we have six that we can talk about and kind of what they're doing for the novel. Yeah. Okay, we're back. So let's go through this. I asked you to think of these on a scale of one to ten in terms of how novelistically interesting they are. So let's start with number one, the woman who solves the problem of sex for him rather well, <laughs> uh, Soraya.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think she doesn't have much time on stage, so yeah. to speak, but I thought she was a seven. She, you know, she is sort of a flat character in terms of like Forrester's flat round, uh-huh. um, but you sort of hope that she returns because she holds our interests. Um, And the the way that he calls her, I think that's something I I love about this book is there are things that feel very, very fictive, but the history of South Africa is behind this short novel. Right, right. And you can't escape that. You can't stop thinking about South Africa. When, right. you, when you read these little plot moments, like right? he calls her and the husband, she says, never call again. It's very fictive for me. Like they, you know, it serves a purpose, mm-hmm. but it is kind of the way whites are clueless.
0: Mm-hmm. And it, feeling a sense of entitlement. And yeah. well, here I have money. And so your role is to appreciate me because I'll be good to you. And yeah. she upends that by saying, um, well, no, this is, sorry, buddy, but ultimately, I get to decide how much of myself I'm going to give to you, and I'm going to cut you off when I want to do that. And to me, it was it was kind of wonderful because it's like a chapter that it doesn't necessarily need to be in the book. It could have started with Melanie easily, but yeah. it to me, it just kind of sets out who this guy is and how he goes through life, and how he will basically start chasing something and or stalking something. He won't take no for an answer, or he won't accept reality. He'll instead try to to reason his way through it or to continue to pursue it, but you see that it's, he's just acting through delusion.
1: Yeah, I mean, and when you asked me this question, I, I thought of how deft the author is populating this book the short book with so many different types of women yeah and i mean for instance melanie
0: yeah let's move to melanie now the melanie
1: lucy physical descriptions the mm. contrast between the two of them mm-hmm. are so well done because i think it, it just sh- falls short of it being cliched you find out melanie is not like the beauty that her sister is. And I mean, I give her a five. I think she mm-hmm. is kind of springs the novel forward because mm-hmm. of what happens. But we really get a partial picture, even less of a picture than Soraya. And I think maybe that's um necessary because of the way Lurie David Lurie views her. The way he gets to know her is to watch her surreptitiously on stage. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, that, and then you almost get more out of the boyfriend, more dialogue.
0: Right, you know? right. So the Melanie is the student that he kind of preys upon. He kind of insinuates himself into her life, and then he forces himself on her. She's kind of reluctant, but she also, it turns out, is sort of troubled. At one point, she's trying to run away from her boyfriend, and then her boyfriend shows up and is kind of accusatory toward Lurie, and then it all falls apart, and he's hauled in front of his committee of his department, and they're planning to discipline him and everything, and he has this kind of moment where he he's defiant with them, and he I think he thinks he's being a hero, and maybe some people would view him as being a hero, that he doesn't want to play their games and say the things that they want him to say in order to confess his guilt that he doesn't really feel and all that stuff but you kind of learn later in the book that it's he's just viewed as being a, a ridiculous figure in this hearing and it doesn't he doesn't seem as noble as he seems to think he's being and it and then he he still doesn't give up the idea of Melanie later in the book and it it does I agree that we kind of don't see enough of her. Yeah. And we could see more because he then goes on to stay with his daughter and the book kind of moves on and we kind of leave it at that, that she's, but it's probably pretty accurate to how he actually saw her, that he, that she was always just sort of a face in the crowd that he had singled out among his students to kind of do this, uh, um, you know, trying to solve the problem of sex yet again.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's he he, the way he views his daughter's changing body the way she puts on weight it's sad and he he has this line that he says um and he views others viewing him as if uh, the way he views them he says he must when he is helping out the daughter's farm he says he must be careful nothing so distasteful to a child as the workings of a parent's body Mm. and i just thought That's not true. That's that that that's. (laughs) I mean, which child is not does not recognize that a a parent's body breaks down. Yeah. But but his daughter is so much a visual thing to him that he's thinking like, who can she appeal to? What what is her future with her putting on weight? And I just thought it was so interesting the way in nineteen ninety nine. He was very, very aware of the male gaze mm. in a way that Bello and Roth were not. Mm-hmm. And that it is completely judgmental. Mm-hmm. And you have to be careful. And he, you know, Katia has Lurie struggling almost with not ex- exerting the male gaze. Like that's his default mode is to stare at female bodies. And right. I mean, the way he describes Bev remarkably unattractive
0: yeah so let's save Bev for a second because I wanted to ask if Lucy if this was where you felt like she was a character that was serving the novelist's purposes that I, I felt a little bit like this was a little bit contrived that that it was convenient for getting themes on the table and that Lucy was not necessarily the beneficiary of that
1: Lucy kept surprising me, so I gave her a nine. Oh, okay. I, mean, I, I was, I, I just kept. I think the, the, the one, one thing about the novel I kept thinking about is, is this novel like a thought experiment? Mm. Because how can Lucy hold out, not discussing the incident? Yeah, I struggle with that a little bit. And I, as someone who has not experienced trauma in my life, I, I don't know how people behave. And maybe it is plausible that she would hold out. But I guess you're right. It started to feel like the frustration the reader feels is the frustration David Lurie feels. And that does serve a real purpose. He wants to solve this problem and put a bow tie on it. And um, it can't be solved because she wants to stay in the Eastern Cape. And she has to figure out a way to make peace with her neighbors and society. And it was frustrating, but kind of I I started to feel like it's, it's the father's frustration too.
0: Yeah, it's funny because at the same time, I can see where this book earned the author the Nobel Prize. And yet also where it was misinterpreted, and viewed as being a very insensitive book. Because this it, it does make you feel like what he has in mind is, okay, here we are, apartheid is over, I'm going to have a protagonist who is adjusting to the new situation, and now I'm going to give him the hardest imaginable thing that he would have to absorb, which is that his daughter is gang-raped by black men and and yet she doesn't want to necessarily go to the police that she's in a situation where she says this is sort of just part of history now this is this is i'm here on the land and i i'm working the land and and i'm not in charge of it and i need the people around me even if they're gonna they're gonna bring back you know even if they're gonna ultimately try to take my land And even if they're going to bring back and have near me some of the perpetrators of this crime, it's something that I will have to face. And that's what my generation is going to do. And Lurie's generation being older says, no, no, there's still got to be some laws and there's got to be some limits. And that part felt to me like I could see where there's a criticism here, or I could see where there's a feeling of discomfort with the way that the book has been set up to put all of these ideas in place.
1: Yeah, but I never, I I didn't feel the first time and I didn't feel this time that Lucy is right, (laughs) that her guilt, right, in any way means she deserves her fate, right? I feel like the book contains its own built in, Responses.
0: That's how I feel too, and I, yeah. I feel like it's he's what he's raising is the complexity of the situation and the scenario, and yeah. he's he's dealing with history, but saying these are the kinds of questions people are going to face. And I said earlier, the ideas he puts in place, I, I should say the ideas he puts in motion, because yeah. it's he's not necessarily landing on a polemical side one side or the other he's basically raising these as issues and letting the reader kind of try to work out where he or she would stand on these issues
1: yeah and overlaid with that is just a parent's love for their child and how claustrophobic Mm -hmm. that is because so it's so much harder to deal with grown up children because you don't have like these delineated roles when you're raising a child. And right. I think there are great scenes where he's kind of talking to Bev about Lucy and Bev's giving him tips <laughs> <laughs> how to deal with your own child. Yeah, Her tips are really good.
0: So let's talk about Bev. Where did yeah. you land her on the scale of novelistic importance?
1: I mean, I thought Bev was a ten. You know, talk about <laughs> novels, novels within novels. Like she, you know, I'd read about her and her clinic that she runs. Yeah, with those dogs. I, I mean, I just and I, I never. I'm not a dog person, but I, I had to reread. I reread Landing because that's such a that moment he has with her and that dog. Yeah, it's a great scene, and it didn't feel at all sentimental or like moralistic, and it just ends in this way that just is haunting.
0: Well, Lurie, I mean, a lot of books will have a, a character's arc. You know, they'll they'll have a rise and fall, or they'll have a you know the character goes on some kind of journey, and it's this progression through challenges with an ultimate triumph and and then a return home and that kind of thing. This book is really more like a breaking down and a breaking down to the bare minimum or the bare bones of who this guy is. And he, his first impression of Bev Shaw is, Oh, she's disgusting. You know, that as much as I love women and, and love having sex with women, there are some that are just outside of my purview because physically right. there's just nothing there. And then, of course, he ends up sleeping with her. And it's... <laughs> it's as a great scene. Yeah, as part of his kind of descent into uh, just a broken world. And then she's also there for kind of the final note of, well, once you've broken down everything that you had and you've sort of hit rock bottom, can you find... Any kind of path for going forward? Is there any kind of hope or any kind of moment? What do you What do you have at that point? And how do you get out of that spot? And that's what I think she plays the role she plays with the dogs.
1: Yeah, and um, he has that great line on page one fifty one. He says, "Let him stop calling her poor Bev." Yeah, he's like poor Bev, poor Bev, Bev, and he's and then he realizes, "Oh my gosh, you know, she she has." Her shit together
0: I mean, yeah <laughs> right okay so let's talk about a couple of there's sort of like cameos in here one is Elaine winter the chair of his former department that he runs into in chapter 20 in the grocery store I
1: mean it's you know it's it's interesting because I, I I mean I gave it a three it's a very quick cameo it's you know it serves to as a reminder to the reader of how much he's his world has changed. Yeah, right. He's just trying to be useful. Yeah. (laughs) And it's, you know, it's also very (laughs) relatable when you run into people you don't want to run into necessarily. I mean, you don't feel strongly, but it's jarring to your day.
0: Yeah. When you are disgraced and you see yourself through someone else's eyes and someone that you probably used to view at least as a peer and maybe were viewed yourself as a little superior to them, and suddenly you sense that they're embarrassed for you and you try to make small talk and and so on but you can tell that they're just can't wait to get away and probably spent a lot of time talking about you behind your back and will continue to do so and that feeling it just sort of cements the disgrace and and what it is to live within that disgrace
1: yeah yeah and it it You know, his style, and I I highly recommend Waiting for Barbarians
0: Mm. if people Mm -hmm. haven't
1: read that, but his style, he really does the awkwardness well, like that moment where the line doesn't move, supermarket line doesn't move forward, and he says there there was time for another question, but Elaine doesn't ask.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Okay, and then lastly, the ex-wife. Rosalind yeah
1: yeah I thought she was great yeah I mean I she has some of the best lines she says really how could you yeah and I'm fascinated by her all exes who stay in touch it has a nice echo with the way she returns and the way he when he later sees Melanie and the boyfriend straddling the motorcycle and he has another Cringy moment where he says, "I've been there," yeah. referring to right. Melanie's body, right. and it's there's something about the fact that Rosalind and all exes that you were once with this person intimately, mm-hmm. but now there's this clear line that nowhere else does this line exist at no other relationships. So yeah, I, I love the the Rosalind yeah. moment, and that hey. that's probably another. That's probably another novel that could have been written.
0: And where she appears in this novel, too, that, okay, when do you see the ex-wife who knows this guy better than anybody else, and you don't see her in chapter three? Or, you know, he doesn't call her up and say, I'm about to, to be hauled in front of the department here and i'm facing a possible loss of my job or you know you just hear about her when he's talking with his daughter and so on but then when you when you sort of meet her and when she becomes prominent in the book it's when he's he's basically just a pathetic crawling around kind of figure and she's saying what are you doing but she she knows him and she still kind of has a respect for him but yeah. she's sort of saying, "What, like you're better than this? What are you? How could you do this to yourself?" And it really, uh, like you said, to have somebody who knows him better than anybody else and has that sort of familiarity with him, it is a really powerful moment, and it does make you think about the role that exes play in everyone's lives, where they they've shared this intimacy with you, but they also just know your what you're capable of and know your weaknesses and your strengths and they can see you better than other people can see you
1: yeah i mean she she's the the, she's so great and you you just want to hear more of her voice i mean that that's probably the one i think i i like the way it's very much in david lurie's head this novel but Um, If there was one voice I I wanted to hear more of, it's Rosalind.
2: Hmm.
0: How about, uh, we haven't talked about any of the men who are here. There is a book that's told from Lucy's point of view. A book came out that was told from Lucy's point of view. A woman wrote a, uh, a novel from her point of view, which is interesting. But did you find yourself wishing that you would hear more? It sounds like you wanted to hear more from Bev Shaw and Rosalind, at least.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think it, it. I guess the, the other character, Petrus. Petrus, uh, right. Yeah, w- it would be interesting, but I think it would also be, I think Kotia would have uh, opened himself up to more criticism, trying mm. to write too much of Petrus. And what we see of him is, again, partial perspectives that reflect David Lurie's point of view when he's absent, when he has the party, the relationship to the boy. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, Kotea writes very short books. It's, it's, mm-hmm. uh, I think, you know, when I think of the Nobel Prize and uh, th- being a chronicler of, uh, of South African history at this time, um, I think that that's a very important component of it. But I also think that his style is... Very unique. I mean, it's it's like journalism almost, mm-hmm. um, but, but with
0: philosophical, yeah, like philosophical journalism. <laughs> that's yeah. a good way of putting it.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's the description of like the the building of the house, the beehives, the water tables, the the dog kennels. I mean, that's that is so controlled and so not a word wasted. I mean, that, mm. it, that's what it really reminded me of journalism.
0: Do the books of the 1990s feel a certain way to you now? Do you feel like we've got the right amount of distance to kind of view them as, as having a, a common set of themes or a common feel?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the one thing is just the emphasis on plotting and maybe the influence. It was the beginning of the uh, of a stronger influence of movies Mm. Mm -hmm. on on novels. And maybe we were seeing less like kind of like slice of life fiction that was very popular in like the 70s and and 80s where you could just write about little moments that were kind of divorced from history, not grounded in history. Mm-hmm. So yeah, maybe people, writers were tackling bigger issues.
0: It feels like that era where the Cold War is over, the apartheid is over, but it's pre-911 and the, the themes are sort of uh, this feeling of impotence or weakening or waning, the, the fading importance of an individual is kind of It's easy to compare it with the fading importance of men in general, or the feeling that your era, the the real struggles are in the past, you know, the war, we're not fighting a war anymore, apartheid is over, but now we're dealing with, well, what does that mean for the people who are still, you know, falling in love, or feeling lust, or having to work, and having to kind of figure out where they fit into history, even though this might be viewed as a a a less important time than say the vietnam war era or the world war ii or or the the era right after 9 11.
1: yeah i mean when i think of this novel being published today i think a lot of people would say like why are you bringing up the past and so this novel very much belongs to the 90s yeah right
0: the journalism aspect that you mentioned yeah uh okay complete the sentence for us i would suggest this book to someone who blank
1: um (laughs) i was gonna say who wants a good yarn (laughs) i mean i know we talked about (laughs) we talked about so many different important aspects of this book i think you know it's You could know nothing about South Africa or Nobel Prize winners or Booker winners, and I think this book would appeal to a lot of
0: people. Right, and it moves fast. It moves through different, like we were saying before, there's a bunch of different stories here that could have carried the whole novel, and instead you're getting kind of the cream of the crop of each of those narratives, and seeing him, uh, you know, you don't feel like, oh, I see where this is headed. And now we're just going to hang on until we get to the end of it. It's yeah. more like, "Oh, this surprised me, and here's a a twist that it took, and now we have a whole new set of things, and I see that we' still I'm only a hundred pages in, and I only have a hundred or so pages left and yet I feel like i've I've been already taken on these narrative trips, and I can see where there's still a lot left to do and It does feel like um I guess yarn is a good way of putting it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I was kind of kicking myself that I haven't recommended this book more to people. I mean, I'm going to. I'm going to actually read The Life and the Times of Michael K., which I bought used mm. probably about 15 years ago. And it's been sitting on my to-be-read pile. So yeah. I'm going to read that. And again, it's uh, it looks like it's like under 200 pages.
0: Right, right. And another book that I think our listeners might be interested in is Foe which is kind of a twist on the robinson crusoe story uh wow. where he yeah he let's see i've got ai i haven't read yeah. it but uh uh-huh. it's about a woman named susan barton who is the castaway and she returns from the island with friday and uh-huh. friday has been laboring under the authority of a character named Crusoe. <laughs> and Ugh. then Susan Barton tells the story to Daniel Foe, who's sort of a stand-in for Daniel Defoe, and he's a famous man of letters, and she thinks that he's going to tell her story accurately, and instead he rewrites it as basically Robinson Crusoe, the myth of the male pioneer. And huh. so it's it's kind of all about narrative, who gets to tell the story, what their focus is on, how uh, you know stories get distorted. In the service of people who have a particular viewpoint or agenda, and it's, it's easy to see that in this book as well. That for Kotzea, it's like he's he's saying it's easy to preach, it's easy to to position these characters, it's easy to maneuver the characters into a scenario that's looking for black heroes and white villains in this post-apartheid world. But he's also saying, well, these villains are going to be stuck in their thoughts and there's going to be moral complications everywhere. And and what does it mean when we kind of circumvent what might be viewed as the, the narrative everybody wants to hear, and instead we're dealing with the narrative that is probably more likely what does property mean when it's all tainted by the stains of the past? And, and what, is, what do laws mean here in this world? And what, what's morality here in this world? Where are we after apartheid is over? How are we supposed to think about reality when we've got this huge atrocity that we've just cast off, but yet we're still individuals who are trying to deal with one another? There's a lot here to unpack, and yet, like you said, you can just read it as a good yarn.
1: Yeah, I'll check it out. Yeah, I'm gonna maybe I'll go on a little Kotzia uh, kick. I I used to like to read
0: everything by one author. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That felt
1: <laughs> so comforting.
0: Okay, well, let's leave things there. Thanks, as always, Mike, for joining me on the history of literature. Thanks, Jack. Okay, there we go. My thanks to Emily Dickinson for her poem 129 and the parting of the curtains. I'm half Swiss, by the way. I've got that still and cool side to me, but also some fire, hopefully. And of course, my my thanks to Mike Palindrome. Good stuff. We're taking on D.H. Lawrence in the near future, speaking of fire. Mike's also got some big things in the works involving Proust. We'll talk to him about that in the future as well. In the short term, we have some good episodes coming up, so please do subscribe and follow it and make sure you don't miss them. Borges is around the corner and some F. Scott Fitzgerald with one of his biographers and Ursula Parrott with one of her biographers. What an interesting life she had and what a fascinating writer she was. Next week, I think we'll have a Uh, a very personal account by an author who wrote about his relationship with the works of John Milton. And we'll look at comics as a literary genre with the editor of the Cambridge Companion to Comics. And we'll probably have some more Emily Dickinson. I'm hooked on Emily, like a fish, happy to be pulled through the water and lifted into the net with a A hook in my mouth. That sounds a little odd. (laughs) I guess I'm not too worried about being eaten. Emily always catches and releases. And I just enjoy the thrilling ride and the fascinating glimpse of her for those few seconds when I'm in her boat. Speaking of boats, it's time to sail off into the sunset along with our setting theme song. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening.